Hello everyone, this is Nelson from Social Hero. We discover the story of innovative social-driven organizations with sustainable impacts in Southeast Asia. In this episode, we have the privilege to speak with Amy, the founder and CEO of The Baute Boutique, a Malaysian-based social enterprise which empowers hundreds of artisans by offering them a fair and sustainable income, producing beautiful, high-quality fashion and gifts. The Batek Boutique believes that women deserve a fair and sustainable income and the ability to provide for themselves and their families. Let's check it out. Hello, Amy. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. I'm very excited to learn more about your journey with the Bate Boutique. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, to get started with our conversation, um, can you share a little bit more about the Bate Boutique? What is it, um, you know, what is this organization and what do you guys do? Mm-hmm. So Bate Boutique is a social enterprise based in Malaysia and we empower artisans all across Malaysia. And we do that specifically by um, creating our own hand-dyed textiles from a traditional fabric called batik. And then we empower communities of mostly women who are from marginalized communities, mostly urban poor. And we teach them skills training um, in sewing. And then we give them economic opportunity to earn money um, in a way and in a time frame that fits their life stage. A lot of them are moms. And so we work with them with goal setting and giving them fair wages. And then we take these products that we make and we sell them um, in two retail outlets and online and also with corporates um, and OEM. So we, we ship globally as well our products all from Malaysia. Right. Awesome. I mean, before we get into, um, you know, the organization, I'm very interested in, you know, understanding one's journey that leads to where he or she is today. Right. You know, I get to know you, you know, that you, you came from the US. So how did you, you know, get started with the Batek Boutique? Or maybe before this, right, how do you start your journey as an expert in Malaysia? Yeah. So my husband and I were newlyweds and we didn't have any kids yet in um, we had an opportunity to move to Penang um, to mm-hmm. help with like a cultural exchange program. And when you told me we could live on an island and train <laughs> people in culture and like work a bit in tourism, I was like, right. and why would you say no to this? So that's just <laughs> what we did. Um, so we moved here, just newlyweds, mm-hmm. and he worked on the MBA and I was um, working in tourism a bit. And we just fell in love with Malaysia. We fell in love, I mean, come on. And Penang has like the best food ever, right? So we fell in love with the food, the people. um, And we started taking Bahasa classes just for Mm -hmm. fun because we thought that maybe would be easier than Mandarin to learn. So uh, we did. And then all of that, you know, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I learned Malay. But at the time, it was just a hobby. I didn't see, you know, Mm -hmm. there was no reason for this. It just happened. So, um, yeah, so we just lived in Penang. And um, originally, we were planning to be here just a few years. And... Here, we're still here and lots of other things have happened along the way, including three kids and a business and, you know, all of this stuff. But uh, we just came on an opportunity. Uh, I think we were always, my husband had lived abroad and I had traveled a lot before we were married. So uh, it was part of our connection with even like, why did we get married? Because we had similar values and interests in travel and cultures mm-hmm. and people and stuff. So I think a lot of that background is kind of what ended up leading us here to Malaysia in the beginning. Right, right. Awesome. And how did you get started with um, the journey in um, the Batik Boutique? 
Can you share a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. When I was working um, in tourism, I noticed I was traveling in ASEAN and I, I realized that um, Malaysia had the same crafters and skill sets and heritage and culture as like similar countries like Indonesia and even some with Thailand. And I realized when I traveled there that it was easy for me to find a gift or souvenir that I wanted to like bring back or send to my family in the States. But then when I was living um, here in Malaysia, I had a difficult time finding a quality gift or souvenir with like colors or prints that I liked. And so hmm. it was just one of those things from the industry I worked in that I thought, oh, someone should do something about that. You know, those ideas right. you have, like you see, and you're like, oh, somebody should do that. Um, but I never thought that was me. You know, I just thought someone mm -hmm. should do that. And then if you fast forward a few years later, um, I took a couple of years off work when my boys were young and I was, when we moved to KL to Kuala Lumpur, mm -hmm. and um, I met this group of women who happened to live in what we call the PPR flats, which is basically right. the government subsidized housing areas. Mm -hmm. And they started uh, becoming friends with me and I had a few of them come over and teach me more Bahasa. And mm -hmm. you know, I was working on learning language and adult interaction. When you have little kids at home, you just want to like talk to an adult someday. So right. um, they would come over and drink tea and talk to me about things. And I, we just became really good friends. And I understood their story um, in Bahasa, you know, whenever I understood their language, um, just their struggles of living in the flats Mm -hmm. Some of them were single moms, some were married with seven kids and just really wow. struggling to make ends meet. And actually I grew up in a similar, it wasn't as extreme, but I grew up in a, in a lower, you know, middle-class family. So I, and I've worked since I was very young, I think I was mm -hmm. 13 or 14 when I had my first job. So I knew the struggles of not having enough and I knew struggles of, you know, not having ends meet and things. That was something I was right. very aware of. Um, and I wanted to do something to try to help. And that's when um, we tried out a few things before because I used to like to bake. So I thought, oh, we mm -hmm. can make cupcakes or cookies, but yeah. then they don't have an oven at the flats, right? right? So it was like, oh yeah, all these things, we just kind of kept going through them. And that's when we stumbled upon this reality that um, a few of them had sewing machines. Now in hindsight, these machines are like from their grandmothers using a foot pedal mm -hmm. and, you know, like I, they couldn't even sew a straight line to begin with, yeah. but that's what they had to work with. Um, and I remembered what I knew from tourism about an, a souvenir. So we right. merged the two and that's why we started using batik and they started sewing, you know, basic things like coasters and scarves. And I started get, taking them and giving them to my friends. And that's kind mm -hmm. of like how we got started in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why, why batik? Can you share us more about, you know, the beautiful art of, Bate. I know it's a Malaysia yeah. culture thing. So, you know, why Bate specifically? Well, the funny part is I didn't actually, like, I don't really know why we use batik apart from, I mean, like, I didn't, I, in the beginning, I didn't love it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what it was. In fact, in the early days, I think when we were buying batik to make product, we were actually buying, like, machine printed. Probably half of it wasn't right. even from Malaysia, but I didn't know, you know. Um, <laughs> So it's only when I realized, hey, there's actually something to this, and I was thinking of it from a cost perspective, we should just go work directly with artisans because I wanted to customize colors and things. So I needed to find where this stuff is made. And I went on a trip um, at that point in time to Kuala Tringano um, and also in Kelantan and, and just have these, I have crazy stories of like being dropped. This is like pre-wave ways and pre like, you know, even GPS really. I have random stories of taxi drivers dropping us off in a rice potty and pointing right. to some compound house telling me it's out there. And I'm like, okay, um, so 
we, we went on this journey, uh, my family and I did, to try to figure out where to get the batik made. And it was in mm -hmm. that journey when I saw the artisans and I met them and heard their stories of being third generation um, artists, some of who were poor, some of who were very successful. Um, and then I saw the process, like the manual labor the, the, of what goes into this and the skill that's actually required is phenomenal. And if you've mm -hmm. ever actually gotten to see it in person, I don't know how you cannot love it. You know, like it's just, right. it's such a work of art and um, it's really difficult to do. And so I thought, wow, this is incredible. Um, everybody in the world should get to experience this and see this. And that's when I decided I want to make sure that on a community level, we keep these, this art form going because it is part of the heritage and culture of Malaysia and it's something very valuable here. And also how can we freshen it up and modernize it and advance it um, so that more and more people can enjoy it. So that's where I think I just, I fell in love. It's not like I knew about it before I sort of stumbled into it. Um, but when I saw it, I was like, this is incredible. And the whole world needs to see this. Right. Right. Well, I mean, as a Malaysian, I appreciate and thank you for, you know, <laughs> preserving our Malaysian culture. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I really, I really love, you know, Bate and I'm specifically talking about, you know, the, the laborish process of making the Bate, right? Um, how, how do you source that part out? You know, cause like, you know, I know it's not easy and it's not, specifically in Malay, I mean, in, in Kuala Lumpur, right? So you have to source it out in right. different areas of a kampong in Malaysia and then source it out in, into one place. The logistics part might be a big problem. How, how do you guys get that sorted? You know, especially when yeah. you, you are from um, another country coming to, to Malaysia, you know. So that's, yeah. that's even tougher, right? Bigger challenge for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think working with artists anywhere, it's a very relational work. So mm. definitely the first time or two or 10 that I went out to Tringano or Klantan or these places, these remote villages, and I show up and I'm trying to speak Bahasa and I'm obviously right. don't look the same as people <laughs> there. And um, yeah, I remember one time I was pregnant with uh, my son and they just looked at me and I, and I joked with them one day, I said, yeah, Matsale can also have a baby. <laughs> like they were just <laughs> like, I'd never seen a pregnant white lady before, you know, it just blew their mind. Um, but yeah, so I think it's been very relational. I've, I've mm -hmm. tried, it's one of the reasons that I've gone the route of doing a social enterprise um, focused on community and empowerment because um, I think as an outsider, especially, I needed people to understand that I really am trying to help. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not coming at this with all of the answers or saying this is how it should be done, but I'm actually saying like, what's, what are some of your struggles and what are ways we can work together? And mm -hmm. what are things that you think need to happen? And trying right. to go from that regard. So I've asked, it's been over years, I've asked a lot of questions and hopefully I've um, helped a lot of businesses. I mean, we have the artisans we work with now, definitely my company is their biggest customer. And, you know, we've, they've, you know, we order hundreds and hundreds of meters at a time of customized fabric from them. And so mm -hmm. I think over time you build the trust and you build the rapport. Um, yeah. It was, it definitely took a lot longer than like, you don't just like Google, you know, where's the supplier and tell them you want this mm -hmm. done, you know, mm -hmm. in this color and send it to me here, you know, kind of thing. So right. um, it's advanced a lot though. I mean, in the early days when I started, WhatsApp didn't exist. So, and they don't email. So, I mean, it was like, and, you know, you, you didn't even phones didn't have cameras at first. I know this sounds archaic now, but um, so it's like I couldn't even say, oh, like the, we couldn't even like send photos back because they didn't email, right. you know. So 
modern technology is huge. They, all of our artisans um, definitely WhatsApp and that helps a lot. Um, so I don't have to travel as much anymore mm -hmm. there, you know, specifically, and we built rapport. And so even how to work together, different groups we work with, when I say things and they say things, we understand each other a lot more right. than we did um, in the early days, but it's, it is quite complicated though. Right, right, right. Well, I think, you know, based on what you say, it's more about, you know, create, uh, not, not about providing the answer, but searching the answer together with the community, right? So, yeah. so that's, that's, that's what I really love. And, you know, like, can you share some, you know, some more about the problem the Bate Boutique is trying to solve? Because I do know that, you know, fans, sustainable in income problem for artisans is mostly untold in our region, right? Can you share some of the stories and, you know, the struggles that that particular community are, you know, are, are having yeah, right now? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we have like two different beneficiary groups. One would be the Batik artisans and then mm -hmm. one would be, um, you know, urban women in, yep. in our sewing center. Mm -hmm. So there are there basically Malaysia has this group called the B40. Um, a lot of them from both those categories would fall under B40, which is the bottom 40th percentile of the population is considered mm -hmm. to be an at or below poverty level, globally speaking. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where a lot of artisans are. That's not just in Malaysia, that's kind of globally speaking. That's a lot of artisans um, in different developing nations live in poverty. So I think that uh, the struggles we have in the batik artist side is that, um, and I, I'm a parent now, so this makes sense to me as a parent, because if you're a third generation artisan and now you've got your own young children and they're seeing you struggle and they don't mm -hmm. have, you know, enough food to eat or the cool shoes or the next gadget or whatever it is that in that age group they want, right. and you can't provide this for them as a parent because you don't have the money, um, then they don't really value what you do for a living. So mm. when your child doesn't see you as successful, and there's all different, you know, definitions of what is successful, right? But yep. when your children don't see you as successful, they don't want to be like that. <laughs> you know, they don't want right. to be like mom or dad who grew up. If I your child you. sees you as successful and understands that, you know, you have value both in your finances and in your trade and what you do, it's a lot more appealing for them to want to continue. So for me, it's about making them successful financially, um, right. according to what it is that they call successful, not what I call per se, mm -hmm. but so that their children can see a different uh, model and definition. Mm -hmm. um, that goes the same with the seamstresses. Uh, we had this really cool story once that I just stumbled upon. Actually, my mm -hmm. staff did one day. We were out taking some photos at the sewing center and one of the little girls, uh, we set financial goals every month with the seamstresses on how much money they want to try to earn. And we try to help right. give them the work to earn that amount. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the little girls whose mom works for us uh, told her mom that she wanted her own sewing machine. And right. she's like four, four or five. I mean, she's not going to get a real sewing machine. She's like four. Um, but the mom was able, because she worked for us, she was able to actually go buy her daughter this pink like toy sewing machine. And it wow. happened to be the day we showed up, the daughter was sitting on the floor while the mom was sewing for us. The daughter was sitting on the floor playing with her sewing machine right. because she wants to be like mom. Mm. And so for me, that's like the epitome of why we run this company because to see the next generation like want to carry on the skill or the craft of their generation ahead of them because mm. they see it as a viable option and because they see it as valuable, like that's mm. where we bring change. It's, it takes a whole generation for this. So mm. um, yeah, so that's like 
we run that our company so that little girl can want to be like mom because that's a good option to want to be like mom. Right, right. I think you mentioned one thing which um a lot of people um you know mostly don't talk about is that um like we don't want to especially in those um underprivileged communities right we don't want to be as you know what our parents are doing you know a lot of times especially for artisans and you know like um fishermen and all those kind of you know yeah. different kind of jobs so so that's the thing it isn't it's not it's not really bad or you know not good or not successful at being uh you know being those particular jobs but rather it's not yeah. a viable options financially for them yep understood and in this case, so right, you, you know, show them, you yeah. show them it is. Yeah, you, you show them it is. And think about this. So we go back and show, like, we've made uh, hand designed like silk for these US labels, apparels that have like supermodels wearing them. And we've had famous people wear our products. We've been in mm -hmm. lookbooks and magazines, you know, outside of Malaysia. Like, wow. I go back to the village and show them this. <laughs> it's, it's like, um, you wouldn't even believe it. You're like, we did that. And it's just because they presented it differently there, right? Like, they saw mm. it differently. So they did the model shooting all differently or whatever. Um, and I can show them, like, hey, you made this. And, like, it's in this magazine right now. Mm -hmm. And, like, we hang these things up at our sewing center and stuff. And, like, but if you're a kid who sees my dad's art was in a famous magazine, like, that's mm. a lot more attractive. Or mm. if your dad's a fisherman. And you, if your dad's rolling in the dough because he catches so many fish that, you know, people buy his tuna from the Maldives or whatever and pay this premium right. price, it's a lot more viable option that you might want to be like that. And you might want to go into that business, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's the key is bringing it back to show like, hey, people value what you do and it is successful look. So we have mm -hmm. to create a brand and we have to create a product that people value and they see it Absolutely. as like, Worthy. Right. Absolutely. Totally agree. And how does this system really works in terms of you know empowering the artisans and also the um the urban poor women, right? So is it more on um uh, like a partnership or commission? You mentioned about the uh, financial goals for the um uh, for the women, uh you know in in your community. So how how does it work? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's different based on which artisan group we're working with because we mm -hmm. see it as a flexible agreement, you know, that's win-win. Um, so the, we are what's called an inclusive business, meaning the beneficiaries become a part of our supply chain. Cool. Um, so we pay fair wages, um, specifically that's the main defining factor. We pay about 40% higher than uh, a minimum wage job for mm -hmm. what they would be doing. So you can earn 40% higher in the same amount of time and skill with us. Um, we specifically use the profit out of our business to fund one sewing center um, where it's outside the PPR flats and walking distance. So we pay the rental, we bought the machines, um, we run training programs, we use our profit. That's the place we probably go the deepest in our impact. Um, and those are the ladies that we work with with goal setting. We partner with NGOs to teach them like financial literacy or healthcare or ch anything about children, family, that kind of stuff. So that's the main uh, use of our profit is supporting that community. But then we do other, like with the artisans we work with, we work more on a contractual basis. Right. Like if they're doing designs, they're just for us. And we may, every year we do like a give back. So last year with extra profit, we basically helped another batik artisan expand his capacity um, and to double, be able to double his capacity. So we use our profits to help. Um, mm. We were able to give them a computer um, as well to do some designing 
you know, more, more like modern, that kind of stuff. So we do a give back also that's additional and that's based on if we hit our numbers, you know, as a company, that's part right. of it. Um, but most of it is in the sewing center. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, understood. And how does this, you know, the current situation of COVID-19 actually affect, um, you know, their work and also, of course, the business of the body boutique, right? Because uh, based on what you said, a lot of um, the lifeline based on, you know, the, the sales of the boutique that you guys are selling. Yeah. Well, I mean, in one day, we were announced from the government, you have to shut down. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. got the same announcement, you know. And so we had about 24 hours to shut everything down. So we've got two boutiques, um, a studio, a, a sewing center, and all the artisans. And it was right, we were in process of working on our Eid, like the Hari Raya collections, which is one of the biggest um, times of year for our orders. Um, mm -hmm. We do gift sets, things like that for hampers, corporate gifts. We customize branding, all of these things. And so we work with shopping malls to do gift with purchase for that time of year. So everything got cut like overnight and mm -hmm. our cash flow got cut because our boutiques were closed. So right. yeah. And when we were sending home, some of my staff didn't have, you know, a laptop or computer at home. So we were trying to send PCs home with them and help them set up. And I think initially we all thought this was a couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of, and you couldn't think at that day. I mean, it was literally like, what's the next thing we have to do? You know, you, it's not like anybody was actually processing, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I think we're still processing. Um, right. <laughs> so it just changed. So when it became longer, we, we realized like our production center was closed. So we had to help the seamstresses make sure they were getting food and things, you know, that they needed. Um, and then we had to pivot very quickly. So we did, um, we discovered that there was this big need for PPE, you know, in hospitals here, the PPE gowns and equipment mm -hmm. for medical frontliners. And we could get permission from the government to partially open our sewing center if we were sewing PPE. Right. So I reached out to corporate sponsors and said like, do you want to support in your CSR right now? Like, do you want to support um, PPE, sewing PPE as like a livelihood, but also, you know, being able to help medical personnel because there was a huge shortage globally but in Malaysia we had a huge shortage at first mm -hmm. with how many PP we were going through we just didn't have supply for um, yeah. so they needed help as a nation um, so we got permission and we pivoted very quickly because we have industrial cutters and you know industrial mm -hmm. machines we can move a lot faster than like a home you know a home seamstress yep. so we got permission and a few so we pivoted to that the other thing we had to do was pivot online very quickly. We, we had a website we sold online, but it wasn't a main source of our revenue. But when you close two boutiques, I mean, it's the only source of revenue at that point. Right. So um, we hired digital marketing and pivoted very quickly. We did a whole new website during the MCO, all of these things. It reminded me of, it reminded me of my startup days where you like, you have like three people who have to do like 30 jobs, you know, <laughs> and, you're like, yeah, do and you don't know how to do them. You possibly can do Yeah, them. and you're yeah. like, yeah, and you just are, and you have to go lean because we weren't sure how long we needed to do this, you know, financially. Mm -hmm. So, um, and most SMEs like ours, the small businesses, like you don't have a huge amount of cash flow in terms of mm -hmm. how many months you can sustain with zero income, right? So we were running, mm -hmm. I have business coaches and investors and banks. And I mean, we were running all kinds of scenario with like, okay, if we don't open until May, if we don't open until July, if we don't, you know, if we don't open all right. year, like what are we working with? So it was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of decision-making, a lot of um, feeling like you didn't quite have all the information or resources you needed for something, but just kind of need mm -hmm. to do the best you can. Um, mm -hmm. But we, I feel really proud that we contributed to the nation 
in that time. And it was a way that we could provide for our seamstresses, but also to um, have them contribute as well to the well-being mm -hmm. of uh, Malaysia. And I've been really proud of like how Malaysia has handled the situation. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, well, I think, you know, the, the revamped website that you guys have are awesome. You know, it's simply oh, thanks. nice. It's, I think it's, it's very nice. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and how, you know, like when you talk about the artisans and also the women, right? What, what sort of number are we talking right now? Like how many women are you guys, um, you know, it's, uh, are you guys supporting and also the artisans that um, you guys are, you know, dealing with? Yeah. Usually annually, um, we partner and work with over a hundred artisans at mm -hmm. some capacity. Um, our sewing center, we've got three different locations right now that are sewing centers that we're working with. And they have anywhere between, um, I'd say, five and ten, two of them, and then one has up to 30 at mm -hmm. any time for seamstresses. Right. So, yeah, it kind of ranges. I mean, it's a little bit lower um, with what's happening because some people didn't want to come back to work yet. Some people mm -hmm. were, they bought like Kampong and got stuck in, you know, Kelantan and couldn't cross state lines for a long time. So, seamstresses, mm -hmm. um, we, in the three locations, we, have anywhere between I'd say 20 and 30, 40, you know, depending on what we're working on. And then uh, Batik artists and people abroad would put us over a hundred. Right, understood. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, it might not be as great, but if you look at the depth of the impacts, then, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a great amount of, um, you know, impact yeah, yeah. out there. Yeah, lovely, yeah. lovely. Yeah, in this case, right, you know, how, how can individuals and corporate support, you know, like, you know, if we that want to put that's a great definitely. question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we just got um, we just got a certification through the Malaysian government where we're one of the only there's seven social enterprises in Malaysia who have the ability now to receive grants um, and have tax deductions for corporates back for that. So I think this year one thing we'd really love is if there's a corporate out there who wants to help either in women's empowerment or poverty elimination or building communities, any of these type things. It doesn't, I mean, it can be artisan related or just capacity building. We would love to like rebuild things and um, recover a bit from our loss and also help like push our business and the artisans forward. So, um, and we have the ability to, to make, to give tax deduction for that, which is incredible um, because we are still a for-profit enterprise. Um, so that's mm -hmm. literally only seven companies have that. And uh, otherwise, if anybody needs corporate gifts and if they have, you know, if you, you know, we've been making, I don't know how many thousands of face masks we've made, but we've made a lot of thousands of, <laughs> of uh, we did one order that was for 10,000 pieces produced wow. here. So, I mean, um, we can make face masks of any shape, color, size, put your logo, brand it, batik, non-batik, purple, pink, blue, you know, whatever mm -hmm. you want. Um, and if you want to do those, like if it's banks or insurance companies wanting to give back to loyalty programs or right. schools who need them for kids or, um, you know, your employees, if you want to provide them for your employees, those kind of things, um, definitely reach out to us. Uh, we make anything and everything. I mean, we're, everything's handcrafted. So, um, I mean, we made the necklace that I'm wearing today. Wow. So that summarizes yeah. you know like you make you guys make every anything everything <laughs> wait what do you say again yeah. i don't know well we don't really make anything and everything but we make a lot of things <laughs> yeah that summarized this whole you know this whole conversation that's awesome <laughs> yeah so the, i mean reach out to us like any any way the, the thing is 
um, you know, you can do, you can buy your gifts and you can do it for a good cause. Like it's win-win, you know, like do both, you know, you can do business and you can do good. It's, they're not exclusive of one another. We can do both at the same time. So that's always what I'm trying to convince the world of. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely not a mutually exclusive stuff. You know, it's definitely exhaustive together. Yep. And also one question, um, what's your goal for, you know, um, for the Bate Boutique in the next five to 10 years? How do you see, you know, this company grow and, and especially the community, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, um, I mean, we want to become the largest Batik brand in the world um, mm-hmm. and we want to be the best Batik brand in the world. Um, and we want to make the most impact that we can. I mean, that's the big picture. We just recently um, took on investors and I've been accepted as part of a scale-up program here in Malaysia, which is pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. There's 10 companies in it. And, uh, so that's pretty exciting because it comes with coaches and we're really going to try to scale the company. And the way our business model works is that if our sales grow, our impact grows. You know, they're, they're because our supply chain is all of the beneficiaries and artisans we work with. Mm-hmm. So it's very much, we've worked for, you know, seven years to build a supply chain that honors people and respects culture and, um, you know, employees fairly. And so now it's a matter of if you scale the business side, the impact side scales. Um, mm-hmm. So we're really going to focus on scaling the business side of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understood. And, you know, like this comes, comes to one very interesting question that I always want to ask um, those uh, our, our social entrepreneurs. So what's your one piece of advice for, you know, the aspiring social change makers out there? you know, for those who want to start a project or even a social enterprise? I think your perspective will <laughs> be very, very different. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard for me to break it down to one. I think uh, know your why. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you doing this? But also um, don't hold it so tightly that you like miss how you can really help. That makes sense because I find with social entrepreneurs in particular, generally we get into this not because of the business side or the money side. We get into this because we really want to help people. Um, but you have to know how to do business as well. Um, it's, you can't just want to help people or your business model or your product might not be any good. you know. And mm. um, so know why. So for me, it's about empowering people and artists. so I never lose track of that. That's the thing in front of me. Um, but how I do it and how I get there, I've had to flex on and like hold loosely because when I started in my early days, it was very, I was very puristic about, no, it has to be like this, but that model was not scalable. Um, mm. and I wanted to scale. So if you, you know, it's knowing your why and holding on to that, but realizing there might be other ways to get there and things like COVID, like nobody plans this, this goes against every business plan I had for the year, <laughs> like <Correct>. all of them. <laughs> So what am I going to do? I'm going to sit around and just moan about it, you know, and say, that's not what I wanted and like throw my hands up. No, Mm -hmm. but I'm having to pivot and do things very differently than I was doing them six months ago, but it doesn't change my why, but sometimes your how has to change. So I think, I think knowing your why and not like not budging on your why, but understanding that your how and your when Mm -hmm. might be a bit different than you expect. Absolutely. I think that's a very good piece of advice. I mean, one question for, for them as well and for myself, how, how do you know yeah. what, what's the right why? You know, like, 
you know, a lot of times why, well, that's a very tough question even for you know, a lot of people as well. So how, how, how yeah. do you know what's your real why, you know, if, if that makes sense? You know, the, you know, you should check out Simon Sinek. I don't even know if I say it's less certain. Yeah, it's probably fine, right? He actually has a whole book about, he has a whole book about Know Your Why and some podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So I think your why is, for me, it was about empowering people and giving people a voice who don't have a voice. And that, if you stem it back for me, that starts from when I was a child. You know, and I can trace ways that I got to the point I did. So mm-hmm. I think doing like literally listening to podcasts or reading books and like asking is self-reflection. Like, you know, you need to kind of be drawn out to know um, how to articulate it and how to know what's our why. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a process to go on. I, I still tweak it from time to time. And I still um, maybe mine started more specifically, but I feel like it's gotten broader over the years as I understand my own intentions and my own wirings and my own, you know, gifting and all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do think that's something to explore because we may start by saying, oh, we want to help um, disabled children, blah, blah, blah. But actually mm-hmm. it's something different than that. We just start there. So I think, uh, yeah, doing these, um, having, having people, also bouncing it off of ideas or off people who know you, and also like self-reflection and asking these questions and processing a bit, you can get to it. Um, but I really recommend um, his podcast and I'll help a lot with that. I mean, I've even like this past year, I've listened to them. Absolutely. Um, you know, Thank you 10 so years much for the recommendation. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Well, I mean, um, that, that's all about it for, you know, the podcast series today. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Amy. I really love the amazing work you guys and, you know, you and the women and the artisans are doing. Thank you so much for preserving the nation's, Malaysia's culture and heritage. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Nelson. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in this week. For more details about the Batik Botik, check out www thebatikboutique.com As always, I am only an email away at hello at nelsonng.my Stay awesome. See you next week.